God is good and all the time. My name is John and I'm blessed to be the pastor here. I want to invite you to find your way to Nehemiah chapter 1. I want to thank you for being here today. I know many are joining us online. Many of you have uh, probably excitedly got out of your house. How many are tired of your own house this last week? And uh, so thankful that you're here with us today. We are in our uh, series entitled Insomnia, What Keeps You Up at Night? And this is week three of of this series. And so I want to give you a quick review. Maybe you haven't been a part uh, of the series the last two weeks, and maybe I can catch you up quickly. Uh, The first week we talked about Joshua, and we had this word of doubting, you know, and God several times in those few verses in Joshua chapter one, really in the first nine verses, like several different times says, don't be afraid. Have courage. I'm with you. And maybe you need to hear that today. Like, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Have courage. I am with you. And so we kind of made this statement that um, we may not know what's next, but God does, and we can trust Him. Do, do you believe that? I think about uh, that statement. We don't know what's next. How many of us were so anxious to get out of 2020 and enter to 2021? And maybe if we knew what we were wishing for, right? We may not know what's next, but God does, and we can, we can trust Him. Uh, last week, uh, interestingly enough, we were in Mark chapter number 4. Pastor Nathan preached a great message on being in the storm. I thought it uh, quite ironic that we were... Uh, in the passage talking about being in a storm as we were all stuck in our house because of the storm. And, and the truth is, we had selected that passage back in December, had no idea what we would be in for uh, last week. But uh, guess what, God? He, he already knew, didn't he? He already knew what was coming. But we talked about even that thought of, of drowning, so we're doubting and and we're drowning. And what we understood is that even in the midst of the storm, where was Jesus? He was, he was with them. And sometimes the point is not to get out of the storm, but the point is to find Jesus in the middle of the storm. And the disciples yell out, Jesus didn't even care, we're drowning. And, and then Jesus calms the storm. And, and, and I think Jesus was wanting to understand is, I've been with you this whole time. And and I don't know about you, but that, that title, the subtitle here, What Keeps You Up at Night? How many of you spent a few hours this week up at night thinking about a few things? How many of you are like me? I, I, I think it, find it interesting that all of us were probably having the same kind of fears. Uh, some of us were hoping, or some of you were hoping as you laid in bed at night, I hope the power comes on soon. I wonder how long the power is going to go out, and I wonder what's going to be ruined in my house because of that. Some of you were thinking, I hope my pipes don't freeze up, and some of you were thinking, I hope my pipes unthaw, and I was thinking all those things about my house, but then I was thinking about the church, like, I hope the pipes aren't frozen, and I'm, I'm very thankful for uh, Pastor Matt, who came up here every day and walked the building to make sure, and, and in fact, one day found or heard a pipe leaking and got it fixed really quickly, and I'm, I'm thankful for that, but didn't you stay up at night a little bit this week and think about some things? I'm just getting blank stares. Could you at least shake your head? Like, at least I know you're still awake, okay? We're all thinking these things and staying awake and we're fearful. And, and 
rightfully so. I, I do want to say, I want to reiterate what uh, Soya had already mentioned, is that it was really encouraging for me to just uh, see you as the church be the church this week. And uh, some of you almost got arrested getting firewood to take to other people. I thought that was a really cool story. Ask me about it later. Uh, and then, you know, just all the things that people were doing for one another as we read Scripture, that we're to love one another, we're to serve one another, we're to go be the church. And it was encouraging for me. But as, we, as I laid awake several times this week and thinking about things, the word that we've been kind of focusing on this month is faith. And I think for many of us, our, our faith maybe got stretched a little bit this week, didn't it? But let's think about the definition of faith that we gave you two weeks ago, that faith is the obedience to God's word in spite of our circumstances or in spite of our consequences. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning. I think about this thought that if, if God's word tells me to do something, in faith I should just do it. Well, let's think in the, in the aspect of fear or insomnia or faith is Jesus says he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, that he is with you in the storms, that sometimes, if I'm going to be really transparent with you this morning, is more difficult to have faith in than other days. God, are you really with me? the disciples, as they asked last week in Mark chapter 4, God, I'm not even sure you care. And I know it's maybe awkward to talk about that in church, but the reality is I have those same thoughts often, more than I care to admit. And it takes faith to realize whatever God says in his word, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have faith, I'm going to be obedient no matter the circumstances or the consequences, and, and it seemingly this week it became a little more difficult. Uh, yesterday morning, we had our men's breakfast, and let me encourage you, men, if you haven't been to one, you ought to try to show up at the next one, which is March the 13th, all right? March 13th at 8 a.m. It'll be our missions emphasis week, but the two different guys that spoke, they have completely different stories, completely different backgrounds, and yet, for me at least, I, I, there was this like undertone, this underlying message that they spoke of that really resonated with me yesterday. And I think maybe one of the reasons it resonated so much yesterday with me is because of what I was thinking about in regards to the message this morning. And both of them, in different ways, basically said that, that they really couldn't get past whatever it was they were dealing with until they swallowed their pride and asked somebody for help. And I'm afraid that in you know, traditional church world, we're pretty bad at asking for help. We're pretty good at pretending like we got it all together, right? You show up to church and everything's okay. I, I thought of this statement, and it may be a little confusing because I thought of it, but it, look on the screen here. It talks about how we're good at pretending, okay? Uh, we, are all, we are all good at making others think we are all good. I think about 
if you're on social media much, and I think about specifically about Instagram, and I, I saw some uh, pictures this week on Instagram or, and, and talked about, or it showed the difference between like the real picture and then what you see on Instagram with all the filters and the things that have been changed. And I think about that even, you know, some of you maybe don't even have any idea what Instagram is. Some of you still go to Walgreens and you get a printed picture after the hour. And, but here's what I do know of most all of us, that when we go and get that printed picture or we open up our phone and we look at the picture, the, if it's a group shot without fail, when you look at the picture, who you look at? Yeah, yourself. And if you look good in the picture, the picture's good. Like, you don't care that everyone else in the picture, their eyes are closed, they're not even looking at the camera. Oh, this is the best picture ever, right? In fact, that's why if you know that if you're around a group of people and the person always wants you to use their phone to take the group photo, you know why they want you to use their phone to take the group photo? So they can be in control of the picture. They don't care what you look like in their picture. They're, they're worried about themselves. Okay, now you guys are, start observing who always have to have. My trick is that I always have the nicest, newest phone so that everybody knows, oh, mine's the best photo. We've got to use mine, right? And I think, though, about this Instagram world. It seems to mirror church world a little bit. And as long as I can walk in the church and smile... Everything's good. And we've gotten really good at making people think we're really good. And the truth is, we, we are never going to be healthy individuals if we can't be honest and have humility. If I can't be transparent enough with someone, with you as my church, and say, you know what, man, I'm really, I'm really struggling this week. And I need some help. And in our story this morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah, and we're going to see how this plays out in Nehemiah's life. And when I think about that, I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 1 if you haven't already turned there. And one thing that I keep thinking about all week was these words we've been using, doubting, drowning, discouraged. They all kind of wrap around the word of worry, don't they? Worry and anxiety. How many of you, no, I'm not going to ask that, worry and anxiety. And when I think about worry and anxiety, I always think of a backpack. Because I feel like all of us, many of us, we, we put on this pack of worry, doubt, fear, anxiety. We just carry it with us. And it may not seem that heavy at first, but... The truth is, if you've carried a backpack for very long, it doesn't seem very heavy at first, but doesn't it get, you've walked through the airport carrying a backpack, and all of a sudden, wow, this thing is heavy. And I think today that if we're going to be honest with ourselves, some of you walked in today carrying a pretty heavy pack. What are we going to do with it? How, How can we deal with the worry the doubt, the fear, the feeling of I'm drowning, I'm discouraged. Well, I think in Nehemiah chapter 1, we can see three different things that will help us deal with that. 
Uh, as you look at Nehemiah 1, I want to give you just a quick background um, in kind of leading up to the story. In Nehemiah chapter 1, about 150 years prior to this story, is when um, Babylon conquered Israel. And that's, you know, when you think of Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego, they took the Jewish people into exile into Babylon as their slaves. And about 90 years before this story in Nehemiah, there was a wave of Israelites that got to go back into, got to go back home. And that's in Ezra chapter 1 and like the first six chapters. And they're, when they start rebuilding the temple. About 15 years prior to Nehemiah chapter 1, there was a second wave of people that went back into home to Jerusalem. And then now this in Nehemiah chapter 1, it's like 445 BC in there, is when Nehemiah, this third wave of people going back home to Jerusalem. At the time of the story, Nehemiah will, will read is what is known as the king's cupbearer. I would love this job because you get to live like a king without the responsibility of a king. You get to eat all the food. You get to live in the palace. You live like a king. Now, there is only one downside, and it's pretty big downside, but you know, you're there to eat the king's food because everyone in the period of time wanted to kill the king, family members, whoever, and so Nehemiah would eat the food just in case someone poisoned the food. So there's like one big downside, but other than that, you get to live like a king. It'd be pretty cool. So let's pick up in the story. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. In other words, how are all the people that went back home during the first two waves of, of going back home? They had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. Verse number three. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity of the provinces are there in great distress and reproach. I don't know if Nehemiah was expecting this kind of response. What's it like back home, he says, and how are the people doing? And the report was there in great distress and reproach. It goes on to say, the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And what this would mean in this context is the walls, really, they represent peace, they represent security, they represent protection, they represent comfort, stability. All these things we want in our life is what the walls would represent. And so I want us to think for a moment, as we think of the walls that laid in waste or they laid in ruin, they were destroyed by fire, and because of the loss of the walls, there was a loss of security, there was a loss of protection, there was a loss of comfort, there was a a loss of having a peace of mind. And I wonder in your life today, what would represent the walls in your life? What walls in your life lay in ruin? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your job or the lack of a job. Maybe it's a relationship with your kids. Maybe it's your finances. I, I don't know what would maybe symbolize the wall here in your life but it does symbolize for you like this loss of security and protection and comfort and peace of mind. And, and that's this pack that you're carrying around that's causing you to be discouraged or doubting, worried. What in your life would these walls represent? And how could we respond? Look at verse number four. So it was when I heard these words... I sat down and wept, and I mourned for many days. I was fasting, 
and praying before the God of heaven. The first response that Nehemiah has, the first response we should have when we feel overwhelmed, discouraged, you fill in the adjective, is we should take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I I love the quote from Oswald Chambers that talks about prayer, and I think it kind of speaks to me at least. It says we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. And Nehemiah immediately hears the words of the walls, and he weeps, and he goes, and he takes it to the Lord. I love the question that Corey Ten Boom asked, and she simply states, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? How do you treat prayer in your life? Isaiah 41, verse 10, you might want to write the reference down. It's an encouraging verse. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isn't that a great verse of Scripture? Again, let's think for a moment we've been talking about that sometimes life gets really difficult, and now we have this faith decision. The Bible says Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will uphold you with my righteous right arm, my righteous right hand. And and sometimes, doesn't it feel like it takes a lot of faith to believe that verse? It does. And then in 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says, Cast your cares, your worries, your backpack upon him, because he, Jesus, cares for you, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that we should worry about nothing, but we should pray about everything. And then verse 7 says, if we worry about nothing and we pray about everything, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your heart. The first thing Nehemiah does is he, he takes it to the Lord. Let's read his prayer, because it's a pretty awesome prayer. Look at verse number 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servants, which I pray before you now, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you, both my father's house and I, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinance which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now there are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray. And when he says, let your servant prosper this day, he's talking of himself. Lord, let me prosper today. He says, and grant 
me is what he's saying. Grant him, he says in the scripture here, but he's talking to himself. Grant me mercy in the sight of the king is who he's referencing. And then he says, for I am the king's cupbearer. This great prayer of Nehemiah is first like, God, you are a great and awesome God. Then he confesses their sins, and then he brings his petition before God. He says, God, grant me mercy as I enter and have a conversation with the king. You see, prayer is the antidote to worry. Prayer is the antidote to worry. We said this a few weeks ago, that worry is is just having a conversation, a private conversation in your head. And prayer is simply inviting God into that conversation. In other words, if you're really good at worrying, I've got really good news for you. You can be really good at praying. Invite Jesus into the conversation you're already having in your head. And so he prays, God, grant me mercy as I go to the king. Now, look in verse number uh, one of chapter two, and this kind of leads us to our second response. So Nehemiah's first response was he took it to God. His second response was that he took action. Okay, he didn't just pray, then he also obeyed. So I'm going to pray, then I'm going to obey. And look what he does. And, and I have to give you a little bit of disclaimer here because between chapter one, the last verse of chapter one, and the first verse of chapter number two, when he finally takes action, there's actually four months in between these two chapters. All right, so verse number one of, of Nehemiah chapter two. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan that in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, then I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of your heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So he finally has the conversation. He has prayed. Now he's taking the action to have a conversation. And I love the king says, what do you request? And immediately we, we see what, what Nehemiah does before he even speaks to the king. Before he gives a request, what does it say he does? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Oh God, I'm taking the step. I've waited four months. I've been praying You've told me what to do. It's time to have the conversation. God, here we go. You ever, you ever had that conversation with God? Like, okay, God, I'm, I, I get it. I'm supposed to take my next step. But help me. One last plea for help. In verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the cities of my father's tombs, that I may, be, that I may rebuild it. You see, the first step, the first thing we should do is take it to God in prayer. But the second thing we should do, we see Nehemiah does, is that he takes action. In other words, he prayed and then he obeyed. You you may have heard the statement that we're to pray like it's all up to God and then we're to work like it's all up to us. And let me just see if maybe I could personalize this. The truth is that uh, many times over the last, you know, many years that I've been in ministry, I've had many people come up to me and say, hey, would you, would you pray, for, pray for my marriage? And you know what usually 
what I've discerned that the prayer request behind the prayer request is? What they're really asking is, hey, would you pray that my spouse figures it out? And what they should be praying is, God, what, what do you want me to do? And, and what's the step I need to take? Isn't, isn't it always easier to see the step someone else should take? And the one I should worry about is me. And so when I pray, <laughs> well, here's another one. Hey, God, here, help me. I'm, my finances are terrible. I'm in so much debt. And what God would say is, have, have you thought about living on a budget? Like we want God to answer the prayer by just maybe, you know, winning the lottery or something. And God is saying, I'm going to help you, but you're going to have to take some action steps. You're going to have to figure out a budget. What, what about the prayer we, I've encouraged you to pray every day at, at 2.42, to set your phone alarm at 2.42, that your alarm would go off. They would pray the prayer of Acts chapter 2 and verse number 42. And it says they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and prayer and breaking of bread and fellowship and in prayers. And what is the prayer? It's a, a simple sentence. Lord, would you help us, would you grow our faith and would you strengthen our community? Now, oftentimes when I pray that prayer, especially in the morning when I'm journaling my prayers, I, I change the words from grow our faith and strengthen our community. I usually change it to grow my faith and strengthen my community. Because the truth is, if every one of us prayed that prayer, God, grow my faith and strengthen my community, then you know the result of collectively would be that God would grow our faith and God would grow our community, Right? So that's my prayer, but listen, I can't just sit back and pray the prayer and have no action to it. I can't just sit there and say, God, hey, 2021, I believe is going to be the greatest year yet if you would just show up and do what you're supposed to do. Here's what I need. I need you to grow my faith and I need you to strengthen my community. And the truth is, if that's all you're doing is praying the prayer, not much is going to happen for you, just to be honest. In order for your faith to grow, you're going to have to take some action steps. You're going to have to maybe get up a little earlier and get into the Bible. You may have to do what the Bible says and follow it even though you don't want to. You may have to memorize. You may have to meditate. What does the scripture say? I'm going to meditate day and night. You realize you can't meditate on something you don't know? That means I'm going to have to read it, I'm going to have to memorize it, and then I'm going to meditate on it. I may need to get in God's Word if I'm expecting God to grow my faith. I may need to spend some more time in prayer. I may need to be more disciplined in showing up for church. So there's a lot of action steps that you may need to take that I know I need to take. I can't just pray, God, fix my wife, fix my finances, grow my faith. I need to take some steps. What about strengthening my community or our community? Maybe you need to take some steps, some action steps. Maybe you need to get involved in a connect group. You can go on our website. You can search by age group, by gender, and you can find a connect group to be involved in, to increase, to strengthen your community. Maybe you need to show up on Wednesday night for a men or women's Bible study or come into the chapel and listen to Pastor Dave preach a great message. There's steps you could probably take so I want to pray, but then I'm going to have to obey. And that's what Nehemiah did. He took the step. In verse number five, he asked for time off to go back 
But look what he asked for in verse number eight. He, he kind of doubles down on his request. I'm not only going to ask for time off. I'm going to ask king, would you pay for this? He says, and would you send a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams of the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall, for the house that I will occupy. This is a lot. I don't want just time off, king. Could you also fund this project? It's a big ask. Look at the response. The king granted them to me. How awesome is that? He's been praying for four months. He finally gets the courage to take the next step of faith. He asks the king, could I have time off? Yes. Then he asks the king, oh, by the way, I really don't have any money to build the wall. Could you help fund it? And it says, the king granted to me. The most important phrase, though, is the one we haven't read yet. Look at the last part of that verse. According to the good hand of my God upon me. The king was only a tool in the hands of the Lord to provide what Nehemiah needed. God was in control the whole time, wasn't he? The time, the four months Nehemiah spent, in my mind, thinking he's probably like doubting, discouraged, fearful. I don't know, God. It's a big thing to go ask the king. And all along, God had a plan, didn't he? It wasn't the king that provided it. It was God who provided it. And oftentimes when that step of faith looks so scary, once we take it, we realize God's worthy of my faith. He'll never let me down. He'll never let me go. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. There's a third response, though. The third response, turn to, uh, to Nehemiah chapter 2, probably just one page over in verse number 17. His third response was he asked for help. And here's what we started talking about this morning. How sometimes the church mirrors Instagram, that everyone, everyone is really good at making everyone think they're really good. And we go through church and we go through life and we never, because of our pride, because we're stubborn, and I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone in the room, we don't ask for help. And God provided the time off, God provided the money, but now Nehemiah's got a big task to build the wall. And look what Nehemiah does, his third response, verse 17 of chapter 2. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come and let us. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the good hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. 
And we read later in the chapter, I think it's in chapter number six, that they complete the wall. They complete the wall in 52 days. As you read the story, many of the men were, uh, were on the wall building and had a tool in one hand and they had a sword in the other hand, just ready to fight. And there's no possible way that this wall would have been built if Nehemiah hadn't humbled himself and said, hey, I need, I need help. And maybe this morning, this backpack you're carrying, you, maybe you've already taken it to God in prayer. Maybe you, you've already taken the next step of faith. And maybe the next thing that God is wanting you to do is simply ask somebody to help you. To swallow your pride and say, you know what? I'm struggling. We will never, you will never be healthy if you can't be humble. And you're going to miss out on the blessings of God if you can't humble yourself. You know, as I uh, carry this backpack, I'm thankful today that it's not near as heavy as it was when I carried it a few years ago. So this is the backpack that I, I carried on the John Murray Trail. If you don't know about it, uh, we spent uh, 17 days hiking the John Murray Trail. It's like 250 miles. There was 50,000 feet of elevation change, which simply meant a lot of climbing up and down mountains. And on day seven of that hike, um, we were supposed to hike uh, about 14, I think it was about 14 and a half miles that day. Um, the people who put this plan together of hiking, they were not very smart people. Um, and they overestimated um, how much that a normal person could hike in a day um, and were, I guess, arrogant, prideful people. And uh, it was me, by the way. Uh, <laughs> me and Andrew, thanks a lot. And so the plan was to hike 14 and a half miles. We we're actually going to go over two different passes, a Pinchot Pass and Mather Pass. And uh, I think that day was about, I don't know, 2,500 feet of ascent that we we're going to have and about 3,500 feet of descent. So it was like a lot of up and down. And so we get over the first pass and then we're going down and, and we're down in this valley right to go up Mather Pass. And I remember sitting there with my brother, and we were at this beautiful little creek. Uh, as was normal, I tried to eat, but couldn't eat anything. I was pretty done for the day, and I've still got to climb over uh, Mather Pass. I think it's 12,000 feet, just a little over 12,000 feet. And uh, so the news, so we, we walked in the opposite direction of most people on the trail, just because we did. Uh, we had to, but I won't get into all the details. And so as we're walking the trail, people were passing us, going the opposite direction, and then you'd have a conversation, and they're always asking you, where'd you start today? How far are you going today? And so all day we're telling them, well, we're going over Pincho Pass, then we're going over Mather Pass, and we're stopping at Palisade Lake, and they're like, you guys are not smart, okay? They are more experienced than us. We were a little ignorant, but we thought, oh, we can do it. When we were at the bottom of the creek, the news started coming down from all the other hikers that that morning there was a hiker, come to find out, was a 67-year-old professor who had slipped on the ice on top of Mather Pass and had fallen and, and he had died that morning. And so all of a sudden, like on day seven, we realized because we were pretty ignorant, we didn't realize before, wow, it's, it's dangerous out here. And there was this like emotional kind of wave like, oh, I just want to be done with the day. And we know we still got to cross that same path that this man had fallen earlier that morning through the snow. 
We got up about to the top of the pass, it was my brother and I, and we, the helicopter raises up and, and is, is removing the man's body from the mountain. And my brother and I stopped there for a moment and just had a, a moment of prayer for whoever his family was. We get up to the top, go down the mountain, and we, we see the lake like, oh, thank God we're almost done. Then I get a, I get a text on my, my uh, Garmin inReach device, and it says, there's no campsites where we're supposed to camp, so go all the way to the other side of the lake. Words I did not want to hear. It was another two miles around the lake, and you know, it wasn't like this just pretty little walk around the lake. I mean, it's a beautiful lake, but it was over climbing over granite rocks, and it was a, it was a kind of a hard two miles. And about a mile to the end, I was just like, I'm not sure if I can make it any farther. I was, I was done. We're trying to get there before nightfall because nobody wants to set up their tent and all that and dark. And all of a sudden, about a mile to the end of the trail that night, I, I hear a familiar voice uh, singing. And then I realized it was, it was one of our friends, Lonnie Learman, who was coming back to check on us because he had already, you know, eaten and rested and swam. And I, uh, there was two things going through mind. I, I'm so thankful to see Lonnie, and I hate to see Lonnie, you know, like, just leave me alone. So he tells us, hey, it's only one more mile. You're almost there. You got it. And we keep walking, and then he's following us, and he finally says, John, you may take your pack. You look like you're done. And guess what I said to him? You, you can, let me hear you. What do you think I said to him? Yeah, no, punk. I'm not taking this pack off. Let you have that on me or whatever. I, I, I'm a prideful person. No. And it wasn't much longer, maybe 20 yards. I, I don't remember exactly. My left knee went out. And it felt like someone had shoved a knife into my knee. And I almost fell to the ground. And Lonnie was still behind me, and, and guess what Lonnie said? You sure you don't want me to take that back? And you know what I told Lonnie? What do you think I said to Lonnie? I said, heck yes, take my pack. And that was the one mile of the 250 that I didn't carry my pack. And I'm thankful Lonnie showed up. And I illustrate that to say that I think that a lot of us in the church are stubborn enough to say, no, I got it. And what we need to do is say, I need some help. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't go. I need help. And we're never going to be healthy as a church you're never going to be healthy as a follower of Christ if you can't be humble enough to say, I need some help. The first response is, I'll take it to God. The second response is, take action. The third response is, ask people for help. I'm thankful we have a church of people who are willing to help. I'm going to ask uh, Stefan and the praise team to come up and, and close out our service. But before I do, I want you to, to look at one more verse. I told you in chapter 6 
they complete the wall, they have a party, it's 52 days, it's a miracle. But, but I want you to look at verse number 14 of chapter number 4. This is maybe my favorite verse in the whole book. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. And before I read the story, what I want us to think this morning as, as a church that we are the people of Israel gathered together and God has asked Nehemiah to go and build the walls and, and, and to be, do this together. And, and, and Nehemiah has prayed, Nehemiah has obeyed, and now Nehemiah stands and says, I need help. And it's like this battle cry that Nehemiah has in chapter 4, verse 14. And I want us to think for a moment about our faith community that we would do what Nehemiah is calling the people of Israel to do, that we would lock arms, that we would join the fight, that we would encourage each other, that we would strengthen one another, that we would humble ourselves and admit we need help. And here's what he says in verse 14. I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And then he says, fight for your brethren, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, fight for your houses. Listen, church, Satan wants to destroy you. And if you live in isolation, you live in your own pride, not willing to ask for help, Satan will defeat you. And what I'm asking you today is as Nehemiah asked the people, would you fight together? I want to first take the God. I want to take the next step. And then I want to say, guys, I, I need help. 